0: Welcome to PhotoActive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhart. And I'm Jeff Carlson.
1: Good morning, Jeff. How are you today? Doing very well, very well as always,
0: because we get to talk
1: about cameras and
0: photography. We get to talk about cameras and photography, and we've got a guest this week, um, second-time guest, uh, Dan Bercoglia from DP Review. Uh, Dan was on, I think it was episode 54, talking about product photography. Dan, nice to have you back.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Dan is a film photography buff, and we wanted to talk about film cameras and shooting with film. And to me, having started Photography with film cameras, it's kind of, it's really this, this like the exact equivalent of vinyls in music. It's like, why would I ever go back to vinyl with all the noise and the problems of discs getting warped and everything? And why would I want to go back to film where I have to actually pay to get those little things to put in the camera? Then I have to pay someone to put them through chemicals. Then I have to pay them again to print them. And what's the point? Hang on, hang on. You're forgetting the whole. The whole problem
1: with film photography is that whenever I've tried it, I can't get the preview to show up. Where's the little thing that shows <laughs> me what I just took?
0: How does this work? It, it is a different mindset, isn't it? It is.
2: It it's is. definitely yeah. It's definitely a different mindset, and I think that's exactly why people are starting to gravitate towards film, especially you know some of the younger generation folks getting into photography the immediacy of, you know, your iPhone that takes a photo and you can click enhance and it looks great and you can post it. And that's kind of one and done. It's uh, sort of the opposite end of that spectrum. It's the slow down, take your time, really think about it, get involved in the process sort of mentality. I think that's making people interested in it.
0: But this is what a lot of people say about vinyl, too, except the majority of people who buy vinyl records just put them on the wall and never play them. No, it's true. There are studies that show this. I buy some vinyl records just to support artists I like. They're sitting in a room upstairs waiting until I can flip them on eBay for twice what I paid. You know, I don't
2: disagree with you there. But as someone who also I have a record player that I inherited from my parents and a small but decent collection of vinyl... And most of it, none of it's on the wall. But uh, there is something to be said when you, you know, maybe you come home uh, from a night out with uh, a romantic partner. There's something to be said for going to the record player, putting a record on, hearing the sort of needle scratch a little bit, and sort of settling in. You know, it's sort of that those those things out there that you can't really touch or feel or explain, but they they make you feel good and fuzzy.
0: Want to come upstairs and listen to my vinyl <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that used to work for many, 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 many years. <laughs> yeah, so
0: let's be honest, if you're you're of that age group where vinyl and film and probably I don't know, retro video games and things are really hip, what how many people among your among people you know is it that common? Film photography? um. You know, I I sort of skew towards a weird group of
2: of friends and acquaintances as someone who's so deeply involved in the nerdery of photography. So most of my friends are camera nerds, and a lot of them shoot film. You know, it's not their standard way of going, but a lot of them have a secondary or tertiary camera that they'll bring along and, you know, bust out for special occasions or whatnot. Um, So, yeah, people are doing it. Uh, It's definitely popular, and it definitely seems like it's getting more popular as time goes on. you know, just more and more people are kind of reaching out to me like, Dan, I want to get a film camera. Where do I start? What What should I get? So where do you start? What should they well, get? I would, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, and I would point them to dpreview.com has been running a series of, uh, well, just to backtrack a bit, since COVID lockdown started almost a year ago uh, and, you know, camera announcements and gear announcements kind of slowed down on the digital side, uh, I decided to put some effort into producing some content about film photography to sort of nurture uh, this need and hired a couple freelancers to help write it and uh, One thing that's really exciting about cameras of uh, film cameras is this is in some ways The golden era because they're so cheap and there's so many of them on eBay And there's so many of them on Craigslist and if you want to get into film The initial setup is very very uh, the initial barrier is very low It's once you actually want to get some film processed and developed that that barrier starts tricking up ticking upward
0: We'll put a link in the show notes. There's a couple of articles, The Absolute Beginner's Guide to Film Photography. And I think that's a good place to start. Me, if if someone were to ask me, I would say, if you really want to start with film photography, get a cheap Holga and do it that way because you're not spending a lot. Um, You've only got 12 photos on a roll, so you'll be able to finish a roll. You were showing us a camera before we started recording. It's a half-frame camera. So on 35-millimeter film, uh, a 36-exposure roll would give you 72, and you said you'd never finish a roll with 72 exposures. It's true that if you have 12, then you, you want the slowness of the film, but you want the immediacy of developing it within a few months after you've shot it. So you want to be able to finish that roll soon enough to get some pictures to to get a a product to get a proof that you've actually done something
2: yeah i i think that's a really good point to make for anyone just starting out is to whether it's you know whether you're shooting a medium format holga in 12 exposures or you know a 35 millimeter camera in 24 always go for the lower amount so you can it's how you learn unlike digital there's no immediacy so you want to be able to see what went wrong what went right um 100 um but also, you know, the fun, the fun factor of that too is you, you get a lot of happy accidents, especially with something like a Holga, where there's, you know, you might have light leaks or um, who, who knows. Um,
0: yeah, the the weird aberrations in the lens sometimes work out really interestingly. I mean, I, I don't want to keep talking about Michael Kenna, who's one of my favorite photographers, has been on the show twice, but he did a book of Holger photographs, um, I think, two years ago. And it's really stunning to see what he got with that camera compared to his usual Hasselblad.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And a, another fun thing, you know, it's you know, medium format offers so many possibilities. And, you know if you really want to get down to the technical, um, you know, bits of it, if you're shooting a medium format film camera, you have way more sensor real estate than if you're shooting just about any digital camera on the market. Even Fuji's latest generation of medium format cameras, those sensors are not as big as a piece of medium format film.
0: And it's dozens of times the size of an iPhone sensor. Exactly.
2: So even the purists out there who want to get the absolute, you know, best image quality, well, there's still something to be said for medium format. Um, To some extent i i i can hear our technical editor secretly yelling (laughs) in my ear like you're wrong uh, (laughs) So,
0: so the thing about the film process is if you want to do the whole thing from start to finish the slow film process you shoot film you develop your own film you need an enlarger to make your own prints that's a lot of work i think for most people shoot your film send it off to get it developed get a contact sheet or get little prints and then send them out to get larger prints. because you're talking about needing a dark room, which the, the, the key there is dark and making a dark room in your home is not simple. Um, all the chemicals, all the equipment, it's very expensive to do that.
2: Well, it isn't, it isn't. I actually I can I'll drop another link to a different article that we put together. If you're doing color, it's a little bit tricky. But um, black and white's actually pretty. You can get set up to develop uh, rolls of black and white in your home for about 150 bucks, chemicals and gear all included. Um, and then what a lot of people do now is they'll shoot black and white, and then they'll either scan it on a flatbed scanner, pull the files into you know Adobe Camera Photoshop, whatever, Affinity, and edit them like they would a digital file, uh, or they'll use a macro lens um, and a film holder with a translucent back, and they'll actually photograph it with a macro lens and. You know essentially digitizing those files so for the most part i think a lot of the people who are doing the diy approach are are skipping the whole printing method um
0: most places that develop film they'll give you scans along with your prints today right they will absolutely that's probably the best because they're going to do the actual negative scan at a high resolution Convert it to positive and send it to you, and that saves you the hassle.
2: Absolutely, and you'll almost certainly get a higher res scan than somebody you could get at home, simply because they're using, you know, a drum scanner. um And that is a big—that is still one of the stumbling points with di- home digit- digitization. Is uh, you know, it's hard—it's hard to get a really high res file.
1: Yeah. So going back one step, since I don't shoot film at all, I actually do have a film camera that's just some sort of consumer thing that I bought and I bought some 24 exposure color film, and I think it's been years and that role still hasn't been completed. Um, Where does a person get this done? I mean, I'm assuming that because I live in Seattle, there are probably lots of different places where I could send my film out or drop it off or get it printed. But is there like one preferred place that you would
0: have this done? Well, Jeff, there's this thing called Google. <laughs> if you no, if, hang if on. You, Google I, I, Google develops film. <laughs> um, a couple months ago, I, I was actually looking because I do have a, a Holga and another camera, and I Googled, and even in the UK, there are dozens of places that do it by mail.
2: Exactly. Yeah, so, that would that would be my recommendation for most folks. If you live near uh, an urban core, there's almost certainly someone still doing film. Uh, Seattle alone, just to name drop, uh, Panda Labs and Moon Photo or Moon Labs, they're the two go-to here in the city that I would highly recommend anyone in uh, the Pacific Northwest area. But yeah, most places, there's, there's a lot of mail-in places. And actually, the mail-in places tend to be a little bit more affordable, but they take a little bit more time. Gotcha. But you're looking oh. at about 20 bucks to get a roll, processed um, scans and usually a, a contact sheet.
1: OK, well, because another thing I, I noticed that um, in the news recently, Costco is getting rid of all of their photo uh, departments. And I remember at one point, Costco was the place that you could drop off your film. I don't know if that's still been
2: the
0: case. That was the 90s, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that, that's actually I think there's some chatter amongst um, you know the Film Forum people that, that is, people are pretty disappointed in that because they have always been a really reliable and affordable way to, to deal with film. Um, but I guess, you know, the profitability is not there. Yeah.
0: So I've got a book here and it was my, um, snapshot pick pretty early on in the show. It's called retro cameras. Um, it's a few hundred pages of photos of old cameras. And, and when I was looking at it today, I was thinking, why do we fetishize technology? Why do we get obsessed about these ancient artifacts? Like they're something from the stone age. And this is a rhetorical question, obviously, because I'm interested in technology enough that I look at these things. I mean, I bought this to be able to look at these pictures. But there's something about film cameras that, you know, today you look at film cameras and you basically got two kinds. One is a pocket computer with a tiny little lens and a sensor, and the other is the camera that looks like a 35 millimeter single lens reflex. And you had so many different types of cameras back in the day. And I'm not even just talking about those, you know, daguerreotype cameras, but even in the mid 20th century, they had so many different shapes and sizes of cameras. Yeah. So Dan's holding up a little, what is it? This is a Konica Big Mini. These
2: are really popular with the street photography crowd um, just because they're very small and quiet.
0: Yeah, and the other one you have the Olympus. I used to have one of them, and I bought one recently. It's the
2: the XA. Yeah, these are classic, and this is actually a great camera. That I would recommend to anyone interested in film photography. It's a it's one of the tiniest rangefinder cameras ever made. Uh, aperture priority only, super easy to use, um, really tiny pretty sharp
0: lens. it has it has two settings for for focus right (laughs) sort of medium and long distance so you don't you're not focusing with a a proper lens it it's kind of like so back in the day around i I have a son who was born in 1990 and around that time i bought a little compact film camera um and that was the kind that you had that sort of all-in-one small lens you don't have any focus you don't have any settings basically yeah it was really a point and click
2: yeah yeah, those were really popular, especially in the '90s and the in the late '80s. Olympus was Olympus and Pentax both made a ton of them. The Olympus Stylus is the Olympus Stylus Epic is actually the creme de la creme of pocket cameras. They, you know, I bought one five years ago for a hundred bucks. They now sell for about four hundred bucks, meaning that if you had invested in you know ten thousand of those five years ago, you'd had a pretty good return on in investment. Um, but. That's almost better than Apple stock. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, but just to backtrack a bit about sort of that mechanical nature, you know, there's something to be said, I think, again, in this sort of very digital technology age about, a, you know, I'm holding up a Leica here and I'm not trying to be a snob or anything, but what's cool about a camera like this, and even a camera like this Nikon FM2, is these are b- both purely mechanical cameras. They don't need a battery. You know, the battery is just the light meter. They're, they're, it's like a mechanical watch. And I think to that extent, that's why people get really excited about using them, because they're these really beautiful pieces of technology that were made to last well beyond what anyone probably even considered or what people, you know, I'm sure the guys who this camera came on the the, the Nikon FM2 in the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, I'm using a modern Nikon lens on it that I bought a couple years ago, and it works just fine. I think there's something kind of cool to be said about that
0: about the longevity of the technology when we're used to getting a new iPhone every year, for example. Totally. 100%. Yeah. No, I agree. The the problem is, of course, that when you get into cameras like that, they're a little bit more complicated. Um, They're obviously more expensive. Which Leica do you have there?
2: So this is an M6. Uh, I also picked this up years ago when the Leica market wasn't so blown out, and I would probably not recommend most people. You can get a really good camera, just as good as a Leica, for a tenth of the price. Um, yeah. I lucked out and bought this off actually an old Nat Geo photographer. I can't remember his name, but he was quite cranky and I won't say any other details about him, This is to get <laughs> in trouble. but uh, he was just clearing out a bunch of gear and I, yeah, he, I got it for a bargain. Um, it's probably my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite things I own, but uh, it's, yeah. it's just, it's one of those things that when I, you know, when things, when the moment feels real, right, I'll take it out and I'll go shoot with it. Uh, and that's also, you know, not just, film cameras, digital cameras, there's something to be said about having a collection of cameras where, you know, you can kind of pick the one that suits your mood to go take out and walk around with. That's kind of...
0: Yeah, but then you've got to have a roll of film in each one, and then you've got to finish the roll and develop it, because if you leave them in too long, that's, that's, that people need to be aware. You, the film's got to stay in the fridge. You can't leave it out in, in warm temperatures. So if the cameras are sitting around your house and it's summer, um, the, the film's going to go bad. But of course... Like with the Holga, you might get some happy accidents.
2: Exactly, yeah, totally.
0: (laughs) So what about older cameras? Jeff has a couple of old cameras there, the kind with bellows.
2: Yeah, those those predate my knowledge a little bit, Um, but you know, the the, the amount of resources about old cameras on the internet is pretty astounding. So I forget the website and I wish I could name drop it, but um, there's a gentleman who's basically made it his mission to upload every user manual for every film camera ever made. And wow. it's a great resource. You can donate to them, but they're all in PDF versions. Um, and it's just people, you know, there's a lot of people like that out there. So yeah, Jeff, we should figure out exactly what you got there.
1: Yeah. So, all right, I'll 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 take some pictures of these and put them in the show notes. But uh, one of these is a number two, a folding pocket brownie. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it's almost as wide as my uh, iPad. It's... It's pretty huge, but of course, you know,
0: at the time, that looks like something from the 30s yeah, at or the least, 40s at least. Because the Brownie was later a, a sort of an all-in-one point and click camera. When I was young, I remember. So, it. I'm
2: seeing this was introduced in 1910 for
1: $7. Wow. Yeah. So, um a, a friend of mine, she was clearing out some stuff. Uh I think uh this camera and another one were owned by her father uh after he had passed away and you know talk about manual controls i honestly don't even really know how to use this i mean the the, the shutter it, the shutter release is just a little lever near the shutter not sure if i can you know um and there's a little guide here that that sort of lets you estimate how far away the subject is in meters and feet and i don't know it's I've really only done digital photography aside from, you know, having point and shoots when I was younger. And so I look at this and I honestly don't know how to use it.
0: Well, the thing about these cameras is There aren't a whole bunch of buttons and dials that you can set to do what you want. Your shutter is a little lever Um, on, for example, on that little Olympus, the shutter, do you have, Dan, yours, is it like a little orange or red shutter button? Yeah, it is. To to make it stand out a little. And you don't have to press it hard. There's not much spring in it. Even even when it was new, there wasn't much spring in it. Um, So it's you really only have a couple of settings if any um that that little olympus has two sort of focus settings and what do you i think it has an aperture setting but most of those older cameras if they don't have um removable lenses it's pretty much point and shoot um now with removable lenses they're pretty much like today's lenses focus and aperture
2: yeah if if you even get focus you know a lot of them will be manual but um it kind of really depends um you know, you take a brand like you know, Canon and Nikon, two of the bigger companies, if you take Canon, they switched their lens mount, mount in the early 90s uh, to EF, so Canon film cameras and Canon film lenses are very affordable. Uh, Nikon has been using F-mount since the very beginning, so F-mount lenses from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s still work on current Nikon F-mount uh, SLRs, so they, they fetch a little bit more money uh, on the used market. But if you already have a stash of Nikon glass, you can go pick up a Nikon film camera for 50 bucks and start shooting film with your own lenses, which is kind of cool.
0: So I don't remember too well the the days back shooting, quote unquote, street photography in New York City before it was called street photography. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to remember what is there to what's what's there special to remember? So I I was using an Olympus OM-10 Mm -hmm. and. When you focus, you'd have those two little semicircles that would have to line up, and you'd have a light meter with a needle that you'd have to get set to the middle by adjusting the aperture. Um, but that was it, right? There's no other settings on any of those cameras.
2: That's pretty much it, yeah. And um, you know, I, I think what's kind of fun, even you know, like what, if I'm going out and shooting street photography on the four days of the year it's actually sunny in Seattle, I'll just you know I'll just pull the sunny sixteen rule set my aperture to f16, set my um, shutter speed to one over focal length, and then just, you know, basically jam my manual focus at infinity and just basically use my camera as a point and shoot. Uh, and I think that's a really fun way that a lot of people enjoy doing street photography with these film cameras where you're shooting from the hip, you're not even looking through. Uh, it's kind of just a very, you know, it really just comes down to that, really that crucial moment when you think you may have, you have something interesting. And I think that's a really fun way a fun method for people of, of doing street photography.
0: One of the problems, though, that comes related to the cost is that you might want to hesitate a little bit because each time you press the shutter, that's costing a certain amount of money and that's going to be another shot on your roll. And if you're at 32 and you've only got four more, sometimes you can get 37 out of a 36 um, exposure roll, but you tend to be a little bit more hesitant. Um, And that's interesting if you're taking the time to compose a photo, but when you're doing something more spontaneous, I think you've either got to have a lot of money or just shoot until your roll's completed and then you know not worry about shooting anymore totally
2: or if you know you, you want to be thrifty you, you know one of the fun things about film photography is you can always take the rewind rewind the roll almost all the way take it out and just run it through again and see what kind of double exposures you end up
0: getting <laughs> well it's important to note that while while i said earlier it's an awful lot to set up to to do your own printing and all that it's relatively simple to to develop your film, Um, all you need is, what do you call the bags that you put your hands in to take the film out of the camera? You know, I I think they're just like a dark bag. Um, Yeah, it's a dark bag. It's got two holes for hands. You put the camera in, you manipulate it, you put it into a little kind of a, you roll it on a reel that goes in a drum, and then you just pour your chemicals in, set a timer, put some music on, make some coffee, and it's not that complicated a process. The chemicals <laughs> smell a little bit, um, but it's not that hard to develop black and white uh, film. Color, again, is different because you've totally. got more complicated uh, issues. But if you are gonna do film, and you really wanna do it enough, you can save that initial money by developing your own film, once you've got the negatives, um, you can do let's say basic scans and and convert them to see how they look, and then you can send them off for prints.
2: 100, percent yeah, and that's and that's a, a good point. You know, I I prefer color photography myself, but just the accessibility of black and white, it's something that I do a lot because it's also really fun to like the process of pouring a bunch of chemicals in and then waiting and then pulling it out and seeing your images appear. There's something pretty you know, it's pretty hard to meet that excitement. It's, it's like, it's like tuning into like a child on Christmas. It's like that kind of feeling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my first experience with that was um, when I was in high school, um, everyone had to do a shop class. And I didn't want to do the auto shop because it was all the, 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 you know, the jocks and all that. And I wasn't into wood shop. And they had a photo shop, photo shop, two words. So I did that and they, they lent us cameras and we developed the the negatives, we developed the prints and enlarged them and all that. And as you say, you expose the paper, you put it in the tray, you put the chemicals on and you watch how it suddenly appears slowly. Yeah. And and that's an interesting process. Similar um, to, to those of us who remember the SX-70, the Polaroid, um, which was the kind of thing where you would, you know, shoot the picture, it would come out and you'd wait and you'd watch it. Um, and I even remember my parents had one of those Polaroids, this goes way back, that the print would come out, it would be kind of curled, and there was this sort of pink stick with a chemical smell on it. I guess it had fixer in it that you'd have to run over the photo after it finished developing.
2: Oh, interesting. Wow. That yeah. is, so. That- That doesn't sound particularly environmentally healthy
0: to (laughs) me. No, I I remember the smell. It was one of those sort of, you know, bad chemical smells. It's probably there's like there's probably towns in the United States that have been closed off because of spills and that sort of stuff. But but that was a process that was common back then. If if you ever see really old photos with those sort of um, scalloped edges, that was done on that kind of um, Polaroid Uh, print camera. What about Polaroid? So Fujifilm has their Instax, which has been extremely popular, but the photos are really small. Is anyone coming out with a new kind of instant film? You know, thinking again, the Polaroid SX-70, how popular it was in its day.
2: Yeah. So there's um, the two major players in the instant market right now, obviously one is Fujifilm and the other is now it's technically Polaroid. And I'm using air quotes as I say that because it's Impossible Project that has now bought the branding rights to use the Polaroid name. Um they make film that will work in old Polaroid cameras as well as their new, uh, their new generation of Polaroid cameras. Personally, I don't think the quality is that great, and I actually much prefer the Instax. Fujifilm does have an Instax uh, wide and an Instax square format. That's, but they're still tiny. Well the wide's not that. The wide's a pretty decent size. It's about it's, a, it's only slightly smaller than an, an old school Polaroid. But it's still expensive. There's only two models that use the wide format currently from Fujifilm on the market. They're both very consumer oriented, which is fine. But um, for such a big format, it'd be really nice to see them come out with something a little bit more geared to actual photo enthusiasts.
0: Yeah, but aren't they like credit card size photos? There
2: are, in fact. Yeah, I've got one of my my dog right here. But the the wide is about um, it's basically like two of these together. That's how big it is.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: okay. yeah. So it, it, it is a bit bigger. So that's
0: it's, sort of SX70 size. Although the SX70 was square.
2: Right. Yeah. So it's not. It's still not going to be quite as big as that as the SX70. Um, but it's closer. It's closer. Um, so we'll see what the future has to hold. I do know that. Instax is a cash cow for Fujifilm, and so hopefully we continue to see them develop out that line, which is interesting. I I think
0: it's what's keeping Fuji alive, actually, isn't it? It, it At least the camera division. It really is. Um, And, you know,
2: again, there's something to be said there. People's nostalgia for old instant cameras is what's keeping their entire digital fleet, you know.
0: (laughs) Well, but they did a big promotion with Taylor Swift, and that must have um, really exposed this to a whole lot of young people who wouldn't even think of old film cameras.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, and that's, you know, I see, you know, just in the wild, not recently because of COVID, but, you know, you'd go to like even a baseball game. We go, I go see the Mariners here and you, there's kids running around with Instax cameras in the stadiums. Like children clearly really enjoy it. And I think it's the same thing. They were raised with iPads and stuff. So there's something to ooh and ah about, you know, about something physical that they can actually hold and give to their friends if they want or write something on the back, you know. One of the things that i would imagine
1: appeals to people is just the ritualness of it and you know that that can go back to even some uh, vinyl uh music analogy but also just that that sense of i mean that sense of having more of a process to create something because now with our digital cameras we go and we shoot and there's the whole uh process of Making the photo, and then you just have the photo but with film, you have all the other stuff, especially if you're going to develop it yourself, and I think i don't know like is there just some sort of Zen attraction, or is it just because it it makes things more hands on and people want
2: that that hands onness? I think it's a combination of those two really um you know, I, I I don't I want to say I don't think it has anything to do with people wanting better image quality because that's not what you'll get from film. But yeah, I, I think you know that hands- onness is huge. and uh, it, it the process feels a little bit It just feels like you have to think about it a little bit more. I think with digital photography, there's this push for perfection to get things exactly right. No distortion, no, you know chromatic aberration you know, that kind of stuff. But with film, it's not that at all. It's more about capturing, like, a mood, a feeling, you know?
0: Well, the thing about digital now is, and uh, let's put people in two baskets, the very big basket who used, you know, pocket computers to take photos, and the much, much smaller basket of people like us who used proper cameras with lenses. Um, For the majority of people, they just get what the camera what the phone gives them. You know, mm. Apple's computational photography is extraordinary and does amazing things, particularly, you know, HDR, et cetera. Um, there is a built-in perfection to that. Yeah. And you're kind of locked into an image, uh, uh, an image flavor, as it were. Um, I guess in some ways film, I mean, I'm looking at this and saying, you know, it's like vinyl. It, it makes noises, cracks and all that. And, and I appreciate noise and photos, gr- the graininess of... Um, you know, film photography, like I have a bunch of prints on the wall here, and when I look at them, you can see the grain. It's palpable. Um, yeah. But I I, I think well, there's a term in, in Japanese, wabi-sabi, which you've probably all heard of. It's like that, that there's beauty in you know, irregularity, like things that are chipped and broken. And I think people are starting to maybe accept that a little more. Yeah. Um, On the one hand, they want the perfection. Um, They're going to go out and spend the the thousand dollars or more for the iPhone because it's got the greatest camera. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people who would just want something that's more organic in certain ways.
2: That's exactly it. And I think, you know, as we sort of push into this, quote, post-truth world, having something that is so honest and so straightforward it's a chemi- you're literally having a chemical reaction that happens on a piece of organic matter and then you're going through the process to make the image appear you can you know there's honesty and there's truth in that and i think that that's something that people can kind of sink their teeth into
0: okay Dan, um, we'll have links to DP Review and a bunch of the film articles that you've been publishing. Um, we'll put a link to this book that I mentioned earlier, uh, Retro Cameras, which really, if you're interested in the, the technology as such, um, it's really interesting because this covers, what, more than a century of cameras. I mean, it doesn't go back to the old view cameras where the guy puts his, you know, the, the cloth over his head and all that. But it really shows the wide range of styles of cameras. Um, So, Dan, thanks very much for joining us, and take some great photos with your film cameras. Yeah, I sure will. Thank you for having me. Jeff, it's time for our snapshots. What have you got?
1: Something very timely, actually. I'm going to point to an article written by Om Malik, and it's called, Why iPhone is Today's Kodak Brownie Camera. And it really touches on several of the things that we were talking about today of, how you had brownie cameras this this brand that made photography accessible to so many more people and that's basically what the iphone is doing today it's it's point and shoot and there are people who are into photography who probably would not even say they were into photography because it's just it's just the thing that you do right like every single day, just go and, and, and take pictures. And it's made it easier for the masses. It's a bit of a historical look at photography and then sort of bringing the iPhone into it. And uh, it's just a really nice nice essay on how the two are, the, are similar.
0: Yeah, I read this and I, I'm not really convinced that I agree with him because the brownie was still a relatively expensive camera for the time. I would say the closest um, similarity to the iPhone is when we had these disposable cameras that came out what eighties, mm, nineties? Yeah. Because then at that point you could just go to a 7-Eleven, buy a camera, shoot your film, you know, drop it back off for development. Um, You know, the Brownie was still a little bit complicated. It wasn't something you could put in your pocket, whereas disposable cameras, you know, that changed everything, I think.
1: Yeah, but compared to to what you had to do before the Brownie, it was just much more involved. And so just the number of, of, of units that they sold really
0: opened up the market. It's true, it's true, but I mean even in the 70s Susan Sontag was writing about how cameras were everywhere and we didn't have yet have disposable cameras, what they did have is little point and shoot cameras and it seems like every generation has its new cameras are everywhere.
1: They are. It's good. It's good. More more photography everywhere. How about you this week? What's your snapshot?
0: I don't actually have an object as a snapshot, it's an idea. It just so happens that I've been writing an article about ergonomics today. For ergonomics, when you're working, your computer should be at the right height, your keyboard should be the right type, et cetera. Jeff's straining himself there, showing his RSI. And so one of the things I was pointing out in the article is that if you have a keyboard, you should not have one with a number pad, at least not if you're right-handed, because that means your mouse or your trackpad is further away and there's more arm movement. And what I was thinking of in relation to photography is when you're working on editing photos in whatever photo editing app, you're spending a lot of time with the mouse or the trackpad. In fact, unless you have one of those loop deck things, which I think you had for a while, where you've got little knobs that you can put in front of you, most people are generally sitting with the keyboard in front of them and the mouse or the trackpad on one side. So I was thinking, If you do a lot of work with photography, and for me, this is the kind of work you might be spending a lot of time, paying a lot of attention, squinting at the screen and and stressing a lot. Think about the position of your mouse or trackpad. Maybe move the keyboard out of the way if you don't use it much and put your mouse or trackpad in front of you. Now, obviously, for you and I, we write for a living, so we're using these devices a lot. And and a lot of people listening may not use computers as much as we do. But it seems to me that any way that you can avoid getting that sort of repetitive stress injury would be a good thing to think about.
1: I actually had never considered that aspect of it. I mean, I've dealt with RSIs in the past. And it just so happens that the keyboard that I use most is uh, an older Apple Bluetooth keyboard that does not have the extended keypad Because, honestly, I I never really used it. Uh, But you're right. Like, having just that little bit of of extra travel to to reach for a mouse or something uh, would make a big difference.
0: Good idea. Okay. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash photoactivecast. That's cast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.